Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with, what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea. The one broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. (laughs) 
that I am not one to yield the scepter with violence, nor to trample upon misery with haughty foot. I think I have not unclearly shown by choosing for a son-in-law an exile, crushed and stricken with heavy fear. Yes, one whom Acastus, lord of Thessaly, demands for punishment and death. He complains that his father, palsied and weak with age, burdened with years, was taken off, and the murdered old man's limbs torn asunder when, deceived by your guile, his pious sisters dared an impious crime. Jason can defend his own cause if it is separate from yours. No blood has stained his innocence. His hand wielded no sword, and he has kept far off and free from company of such as you. You, you contriver of wickedness, who combined woman's wanton recklessness with man's strength, with no thought of reputation, away. Purge my kingdom and take your deadly herbs with you. Free the citizens from fear, abiding in some other land to burden the gods. Oh, hi there. Hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, where I live, your host, am slowly being convinced that maybe Senate and tragedy isn't just Roman, but actually super amazing. Wild times we're living in, I can tell you that. But yes, that means today I am back with part two of our episodes talking about Seneca's Medea. Oh, now, maybe you're thinking, Liv, have you really not told us enough about Medea? You've dedicated, what, like six or seven episodes to the woman? And to that I say, who are you? Why do you hate Medea? No, but for real, I'm sorry. I could talk about this character forever. And yes, I recognize that being interested in a woman most famous for killing her children maybe has some weird connotations. But guess what? I don't care. The thing about Medea and tragedy in general is that you can always see a different version, different interpretation. Like you can pull things out of everything. And I want to. Medea is a deeply important mythological character, someone who appears in many different places, in many different iterations, but the ways she appears in tragedy are some of the most interesting. Tragedy often gets lumped in with mythology, particularly when it comes to people like Oedipus, because, you know, their, their stories are lost beyond what exists in tragedy. But Medea exists beyond tragedy, and what that means is that when we're looking at plays that feature her, we're not only looking at like another different interpretation of her mythologically, but we're also looking at how one particular person like wanted to see her and portray her, wanted to convey her story, her, her personality, her passion, her murderous tendencies. And in this case, we get to see how a Roman philosopher and tragedian might convey that story. And God's damn, if that isn't fascinating enough to, for the zillionth time, examine the story of that barbarian princess who was unfortunate enough to fall into Jason's web. H have I mentioned lately that I enjoy learning and talking about Medea? No. Anyway, the most important thing I want to tell you today is that the etymological origins of the name Barbara, and thus the name Barbie, is literally just 
the feminine form of the word barbarian. Medea is Barbie. Barbie is Medea. This is episode 225. She's everything. He's just Jason. As with last week, I will mostly be quoting and referencing Emily Wilson's translation of Seneca's Medea, but quotes like the paragraph I read at the top of the episode are adapted from the translation by Frank Justice Miller. Where we last left Medea, in Seneca's version of her story, we'd met a woman who was angry, furious, and, well, murderous. Right from jump, she spoke of her fury at the actions of Jason, Though she does appear more interested in forgiving him. Specifically more interested than, you know, the Medea of Euripides, but it's fine. She's still a bit caught up in his web, but that doesn't stop her from openly plotting the death of the king, Creon, and his daughter, Creusa, who's next up in marrying Jason. Sucks to be her. This Medea, while still a barbarian, seems to be more representative of, like, this angry woman, angry ex-wife, than foreigner. This was written in Rome, after all, and they saw these things very differently from the Greeks, but also Seneca's playing with Euripides' version where that is so explicit, it's like he doesn't have to do it again. That, you know, in itself makes this play fascinating, and it's why I am eagerly awaiting the conversation episode that I will run at the end of the series. But until then, until we've got a Romanist (laughs) who knows Seneca to ask questions of, we are diving back into this play. Medea has just spoken with Creon. She has reminded him that she didn't just save Jason on the quest for the Golden Fleece, but many of Greece's other important heroes. And so, like, I mean, where would they be without her? What would Greece be if it hadn't been for Medea? All she wants, she told Creon, was is just to stay in Corinth. He can give her anything, a hovel somewhere far in the edges of the region, anything so that she doesn't have to leave the place that she has called home for all of these years. It's not as though she can return to her childhood home, after all. Her father didn't take too kindly to her killing her brother in order to allow her and Jason to escape his clutches. No, Corinth is all Medea has. But Creon wants nothing to do with her. In response to Medea's speech, her pleas... Creon replies with the lines that I recited at the top of the episode. He says that he has already proven that he's not a tyrant, so she can't go calling him that. He's a kind man, a good man, he says. That's why he chose Jason, an exile from his own homeland, to be his new son-in-law, to marry his daughter, Creusa. What, Jason was already married? (laughs) That's none of his business. Obviously, I'm a good person, he's saying, because, you know, he took Jason in after all that Medea did to him. He goes on to explain that Jason was exiled because of Medea's actions. She killed the king of Thessaly, Peleus, you know, had his own daughters tear him limb from limb. (laughs) You remember. All because of Medea. Of course, he doesn't add that, you know, based on everything we know about this, it was something that Medea did because Jason asked her to. Like, she had no skin in the game. She didn't need Peleus dead. But no, no, Jason is the victim here. 
And Creon is proving himself to be benevolent by taking in that very victim, saving him from Medea's clutches. He tells her that Jason is free from her now, because without Medea there's nothing to taint him, no blood on his hands. He goes on and on describing the horror that he sees in Medea, that, you know, now in Wilson's translation says, quote, you scheming source of every criminal act you have a woman's wickedness your daring shows masculine strength ignoring what men say no i can't read his lines seriously sorry this accusation is so telling of not only the euripidean play you know and how the athenians saw women like medea but the romans too her strength of character is manly it's masculine and thus bad He finishes by telling her to leave his kingdom, leave it clean and pure in her wake, taking her deadly drugs with her. And yet again, this Medea is just, I mean, I love her. I don't want to dare suggest that I prefer her to Euripides' Medea, but I am getting closer and closer to that blasphemous statement with every line that she speaks. Her response to Creon, quote, You force me to leave, then give back my ship or give me back my friend. She goes on, quote, why tell me to go alone? I did not come alone. This Medea, oh, she knows how to use logic, facts in her argument. Jason brought her there. He he brought her on the Argo with countless other Greeks by their side. It's only fair that Medea doesn't have to leave alone. It wasn't her choice to end up in Corinth or even Greece at all. She goes on to remind Creon of, you know, what he should already know, that both she and Jason are guilty in the death of Peleus. Quote, Peleus died for him, not me. Charge him with theft, desertion, my abandoned father, my brother torn apart, all the new crimes which he, even now he teaches to his new bride. She finishes by adding, quote, I have done so much harm, but never for myself damn fucking right Medea like you are taking responsibility for your actions but also you know you did them for a reason of course Creon isn't actually listening to anything that she has to say he's not taking any of her sound and rational arguments into consideration this is not a fair conversation it is not a real debate Medea doesn't actually have the opportunity to defend herself against the accusations Creon's only response is to ask her why she hasn't left yet fine she says I'll be on my way she has one, one thing to ask. Quote, one final favor. Do not make my innocent children suffer for their mother's guilt. Sure, Creon tells her. He'll treat them as if they're his own. Good, Medea replies. But, uh, but please, before I am forced to leave, you know, into exile forever, separated from my children for the rest of their lives. Quote, I am a mother. Let me kiss my children one last time. I may be close to death. Medea's asked Creon for one last favor, one little gift before she is exiled from Corinth forever. She asks him to let her say goodbye to her beloved children, to give them one last kiss. 
And though Creon tries to fight this, tries to suggest that even such a tiny ask, such a small amount of time before she's exiled forever, could allow her to commit some horrible Medean crime, in the end, despite his own fears, Creon allows her to have that one day. One day to prepare for her exile in whatever ways she needs. One day to say goodbye to her children forever. A whole day! Medea is surprised, even tells him that he can reduce the time if he wants. She, she's just as much in a rush as he is. But Creon confirms, quote, On pain of death, you must leave the Isthmus before the light of dawn. And then he leaves her because, well, he's needed at the wedding, of course. The wedding of Jason and Creusa is about to take place. Quote, I am summoned by the marriage rites and Hymen's holy day calls me to prayer. The chorus sings of sailing, of the first people who set out on a ship on treacherous seas, looking back at their homes fading beyond the horizon. This is the mythological history of the Argo, Jason and his Argonauts, that theirs was the first ship to ever sail. The chorus sings of the unruly, unpredictable winds, of putting one's faith in the delicate hands of a boat, of the people who made it. They sing of how, back then, the constellations were unknown. They couldn't use them yet to determine their location, to plot their course. They sing of those constellations of the Hyades and the goat Capella, of the plough and of Boreas and Zephyr, gods of the wind. They sing of the way people lived before those ships, before they could sail. And they sing of the Argo, that ship that set sail on those same treacherous seas. They sing of its crew, of Typhus and Orpheus. They sing of the dangers the ship faced, of Scylla, that Sicilian monster. They sing of the sirens, how it was only with the help of Orpheus and his lyre that the Argonauts were ever able to escape them. They sing of the Golden Fleece and, quote, Medea, greater evil than the sea, a worthy cargo for the world's first boat. They sing of how things have changed, how there's no longer the need for a ship built by the gods themselves, as the Argo was built by Athena. Now any old boat can sail the seas, anyone can reach what used to be so restricted, quote, all boundaries are gone, and the cities have set up their walls in new lands. The world is a thoroughfare. Nothing remains where it is. They sing of how the Mediterranean has changed, right down to referencing the people of India, which is just a beautiful reference to how far things had come by the time Seneca was writing his Medea. Back when Euripides wrote his, the people of the Western Mediterranean hadn't yet met the Indians or traveled there but by the time of Seneca, they had. The chorus even imagines an even broader world, a world even more open and shared. Quote, The ages will come in faraway years when ocean will set free the links of nature and the great earth lie open and Tethys will open new worlds and Thule will no longer be the end of the earth. How beautiful is that? Thule, by the way, refers to the lands north of what is now known as the United Kingdom, and then was considered the edge of the world. Yes, I had to look that up. 
When the chorus has finished their song, Medea's nurse seems to be almost in the midst of addressing her, calling her back, asking her why she's rushing away from the house, pleading with her to hold back her rage to control herself, but she is both speaking to and about Medea. So we might imagine that on stage, Medea appears frantic, moving about without fully listening to the nurse's pleas. The nurse describes this, quote, as a maenad staggers on uncertain feet, mad with the inspiration of the god on the peak of snowy Pindus or Mount Nyssa, so she runs to and fro, her movements wild, her face displays her crazy passion's marks. She is mad as a maenad, frenzied and raging, too deep into the contemplation of her crimes, crimes that are extreme, Quote, she will outdo herself. I recognize this passion. She intends some terrible deed, wild and unnatural. I see the face of passion. Gods prove my fear false. To which our girl Medea responds, quote, Poor woman, do you want to know where hatred ends? Look to love. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full time by world renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here. 
A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Justin Richmond, host of the Broken Record Podcast. Join me and co-host Leah Rose for in-depth creative conversations with the artists you love. Over the past five years, we've interviewed some of the most legendary figures in music, like Paul Simon, Pharrell, Damon Albarn, Andre 3000, and Usher. And you'll hear from rock icons like Pete Townsend, who shares wild stories about his formative years with The Who, and Johnny Marr, the legendary guitarist and co-founder of The Smiths, who has an unwavering devotion to his craft. Or the stories behind the legendary hits Babyface wrote for Whitney Houston and Madonna, plus how he collaborates with the new generation of R&B stars like Kehlani and Dochi. Listen to Broken Record on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you seek it, poor soul, what limit should you set to hate? copy your love. Can it be that unavenged I should endure this royal wedding? Shall this day go idly by so anxiously besought, so anxiously bestowed, while the central earth shall bear up the balanced heavens, while the bright universe shall pursue its unchanging rounds, while sand lacks number, while day attends the sun and stars the night, while the bears revolve around the pole and rivers fall to the sea, my madness shall never cease its quest of vengeance and shall grow on forever. What ferocity of beasts, what Scylla, what Charybdis sucking up the Ausonian and Sicilian waters, or what Etna, resting heavily on panting Titan, shall burn with such threats as I? No whirling river, no storm-tossed sea, no Pontus raging beneath the northwest wind, no violence of fire fanned by the gale could imitate the onrush of my wrath. I shall lay prostrate and destroy all things. Did he fear Creon and the threats of Thessaly's king? True love can fear no man, but grant that under compulsion he yielded and made surrender— he could at least have come to me, could have spoken some last words to his wife. This also, though bold of heart, he feared to do. Surely it was in the power of the king's son-in-law to put off the time of my cruel banishment. One day was given for my two children, but I complain not that the time is short, it shall stretch far. This day shall do something that no future day will forget. I will storm the gods and shake the universe. Yeah, I, I had to quote that whole damn speech because fuck, it's good. 
That was, of course, a quote adapted from the old Miller translation rather than the Wilson, but uh, chef's kiss. That was Medea's reply to her nurse. The last line being in the Wilson translation, quote, I will attack the gods. I will shake the world. And fuck if that isn't one of the best lines I've ever read. Even though I think Medea has now made it pretty clear that she isn't about to change her mind, you know, isn't about to give up her unending quest for vengeance, her nurse still tries to convince her. She says, yes, I know you're upset, Medea, and rightly so, but you need to calm down. And of course, Medea replies with just, quote, Peace can only be mine if I see everything ruined along with me. Let fall the world with me. How sweet to destroy when you die. So yeah, I just don't think you can change her mind, lovely nurse. You know, but I respect that you won't give up trying. Seriously, though, this Medea, (laughs) she's amazing. Like, I know she's plotting murder and there's about to be some real fucked up tragedy, but the way she speaks about her rage... The way a woman speaks about her rage, about all the very valid and rational reasons she's angry, the way that she's been wronged by others despite only doing what was asked of her, it's just magnificent. It's empowering. It's fucking refreshing as all hell, even if I know it's about to fucking explode with blood and guts all over the damn place. For now, I fucking love her. And what do you know? That fucker Jason just arrived on the stage... What do you want to bet that he does little to redeem himself? Yeah, I wanted to make sure I wrote that before I had a chance to read any of his lines, and now that I have. <laughs> well, this Jason's interesting. Uh, for all that Euripides' Jason is insufferable, for all that Medea hates him, Seneca's Jason is pathetic, sniveling, just obnoxious. He begins by talking about how his luck This is always bad. How cruel fate is to him. He says that, quote, If I wanted to be faithful to my wife, she had earned it. I had to forfeit my life. If I did not want to die, I had to to give up. Poor me. Fidelity. Then he speaks of their children, presenting himself as only ever worrying about them and their well-being. And hey, maybe this Jason is that kind of caring father. You know, that certainly wouldn't be a point against him. I'll admit in reading this version, I'm still entirely biased from all the other Jasons that I've read, all the ridiculous actions of that man in all the Greek sources. Here, though, he speaks of his love for the children. How, quote, love for my children defeated me. He says that though Medea is fierce, quote, she still, I think, cares more for her children than her marriage. I can't tell if that's meant to be like... A plus or a minus? I don't know. He's speaking of her. He's watching her from afar before approaching. He says that he's made up his mind. He's going to plead with her. He knows she's angry. Knows that it might be fruitless to try to reason with her where her head is now. But he's going to try. Quote, Look, now she sees me. She jumps. In a towering rage. She shows how much she hates me. All her bitterness is in her face. Honestly, I really wish I had time to like reread Euripides' Medea right now to really dive into comparing the two. But alas, still, this Jason is markedly different from Euripides. He's more aware, both self-aware to an extent, and aware of Medea. He has a much better idea of just how angry she is with him and just how far she might go in an effort to get her revenge. But he also presents this idea that, like, maybe he's not doing this entirely of his own volition. I think it's a cop-out. 
I'm looking forward to asking my upcoming guest about this because based on what we he just said in those earlier lines, he seems to like have to marry Creusa or risk his own death. It's so unclear what that means, where that's coming from, why he feels that, but it's major. Or it could also just be yet another allusion to the violence that is Seneca's Medea. Does he mean instead that it would be Medea to kill him if he remained with her? I could certainly see that crossing Jason's mind, given how many times he had her murder for him. <laughs> Though if that's the case, he's certainly more self-aware than earlier Jason's. He knows that she did horrible things for him, and that suggests that, if given reason and opportunity, she could certainly do horrible things to him just as easily. Basically, sometimes I'm really angry when there's no footnote or endnote to explain very specific questions that I personally have. Still, this Jason is different. He is torn, uncertain, pathetic in his own Jasonian way. He is not the Jason of Euripides, and I don't like him, so that's saying a lot. You know, in the same way that this Medea, though, is not the Medea of Euripides, she seems to tower over Jason in a way that Euripides never did. He is below her, secondary. She's everything. He's just Jason. And as someone on Twitter said when I tweeted exactly that. And he's about to find out what happens when he tries to turn her dream house into his mojo dojo casa house. Medea isn't fucking around when she finally spots Jason. She dives right in, telling him that she's no stranger to fleeing to exile. It's just the last time she did it for him, and this time she's forced to do it because of him. Quote, Now I leave. I go away because you force me to abandon your home, your hearth, your gods. Abandoning his gods. Now that really strikes deep, doesn't it? This woman is giving up literally everything, which she only has because she already gave up literally everything, because the man she did everything for has just, what, changed his mind. We don't even get much of the barbarian aspect in Seneca's case. It's kind of like Euripides laid all that groundwork, and now we're looking more at the people themselves. So instead, we get the idea that Jason is leaving Medea because maybe she's dangerous, because she's murdered, or because he feels like he has to. Of course, as she will remind him and Creon and anyone who might be there to listen, she's dangerous for him. She murdered for him. Everything that made her into what she is Everything that the Greeks seem to suddenly fear in her is because she was helping the Greeks, helping Jason. This Medea is shrewd, calculating, brilliant. She asks Jason, where exactly do you expect me to go? Jason, who do you expect me to return to? Should I go to where I came from? To Colchis? Quote, my father's kingdom and the fields we soaked with the blood of my brother. Or, she continues, asking him if he expects her to return to the strait where she led him, the adulterer, and all of his men through the deadly clashing rocks that would have killed them. 
Or should she go to Iolcus, where she once again killed for Jason? Quote, all the paths I opened for you, I closed for me. And she adds, quote, you impose exile on an exile, but grant me no place to go. <sighs> he made her an exile, and yet now he's the one exiling her from even that. Where can an exile go when they're exiled from the place that they were originally exiled to? In addition to having called out Jason as an adulterer earlier, Medea presses deeper into this narrative that like he's forcing upon her that is, and that is giving major Euripides flashbacks. You know, in choosing Creusa over her, Jason has essentially made Medea his concubine rather than his legal wife. He's taken her down a notch. In the Euripides, this all revolves around her being this foreigner, this barbarian, and what that implies in their marriage. And here she uses it as a kind of rhetorical weapon. Quote, let the king in his anger crush this concubine, torture me, make me bleed, weigh down my hands with chains, shut me up in a stony jail for an unending night. God, this play is Roman as fuck, and I mean that in the most loving of ways. Like, imagine Euripides writing this kind of dialogue, this kind of violence, this kind of, like, mind-bending fury. She goes on. She asks Jason to remember all they went through in Colchis. The fire-breathing bull she saved him from. The terrors of the Colchian people. Her, her father's kingdom. The field of sown men. Armored and attacking him. That he defeated with her help. She reminds Jason of everything. Everything they went through and all the myriad ways she fucking saved his ass and sacrificed herself, her family, every fucking thing that she had in the world, all for him. Her speech is, unsurprisingly, fucking great. <laughs> of course, it doesn't matter how good her speech is, just as it didn't matter when she was speaking with Creon. She's speaking for herself, not because anyone is likely to give her what she wants, what she deserves. She ends by saying to Jason, quote, For you I gave up my kingdom, my father, my brother, my shame. This was my dowry when I married you. I am leaving. Give me back what is mine. And, and Jason says that his tears convinced Creon to let Medea live. He doesn't say it, but the implication is, isn't that enough? Haven't I done enough? They begin passing quick lines back and forth. Another reason for me to explain that that's called the Stichomythian is very much reminiscent of Greek tragedy. Medea, sarcastic as all fucking hell because she is all I want in this world. I want to say she's me, but like, I'm never going to have kids to murder. So like, maybe it's okay if I say that. Anyway, she says to Jason, basically... Oh, well, thank you. I didn't realize exile was a gift. <sighs> and he just tells her to go while she still can to get out of Corinth. She tells him that everything he has to say is out of loyalty to Creusa. He's just trying to get rid of his new wife's rival. <sighs> to which he says, quote, Medea blames me for love. And that's when I decided that I might hate this Jason most of all. Like, yeah, fuck her. That's absolutely what she's saying, you enormous twat. Of course, she doesn't need uh, me defending her. Medea's reply to that is, 
Yeah, but also murder and betrayal. Jason, ever the useless piece of garbage, asks her what crimes she can actually charge him with. Everything I just said, she replies. And then because I didn't hate him enough, he says, quote, Ah, that was all I needed, that your crimes would be treated as my fault. <laughs> I want to say that he's being a gaslighting monster, but honestly, this feels like beyond gaslighting even. He's absolutely and completely willing to pretend that everything Medea did for him wasn't his fault. That she killed her brother to allow him and his entire crew to escape. Because what, she felt like it? Like, for fun? That she killed the man who stole Jason's kingdom because what? She had some claim to Iolcus, a place she'd never been before? It doesn't matter, though. Not to Jason. She's the woman. She's the foreigner. She's the one he's leaving. He can blame her all he wants. He can change the narrative, rewrite their history to convince himself and everyone around him that he was entirely without fault, ever. That she was just dragging him along, doing whatever she wanted. <sighs> Medea's ready for him. She tells Jason that the crimes are absolutely his. That if one gains from a crime, they did it. That, quote, if your wife is disgraced, everyone is against her, you alone must protect her. You shout her innocence. Finally, though, after another jab of words between the two, they bring up what both of them have likely been thinking about. Their children. Jason tells Medea she needs to make peace with them before she leaves forever. She responds by saying, they're not children of hers. She's angry. Instead, she asks if Creusa will give them siblings. To which Jason replies, quote, Yes, though she is a queen to the wretched children of exiles. Because, well, Jason is an asshole. Medea wishes aloud that that day never comes, that her poor children never have to have their bloodline tainted by Corinthian crimes. Specifically Sisyphean blood, as Creusa is descended from him. Jason, again, just begs her to leave. He asks what he can do to convince her. She says she wants a crime. It's her turn. She says, quote, It's time for a face-off. Let us fight and let the prize be Jason. Not sure he's much of a prize, Medea, but I respect your right to see it that way. Somehow she still wants him. Still wants to convince him to pick her, to run away with her, to leave it all behind. <laughs> and while this feels like the least realistic bit of the play, and yes, I recognize what that will imply when we get to the final episode next week. Still, I can't see her wanting him back. Not really. Like, not after everything she said, everything that she's done. Jason doesn't tell her no outright. Instead, he points out that there are two kings who would be after them if they fled. Acastus in Iolcus, the son of Peleus, and Creon, there in Corinth. Medea, though. Gods, she's Medea. So she just tells him to add to that list her father and the Colchians and the Scythians who decide with him and the Greeks as a whole. Quote, I will destroy them all. She will destroy them all. <laughs> Jason's reply is, quote, I shudder at great power. Because as I said, <sighs> she is everything. He's just Jason. Uh, well, gods, that was fucking amazing, and I'm fucking obsessed with Seneca's Medea now. 
Well, nerds, uh, basically this new appreciation of Seneca has opened up far more content for the podcast. So I am thrilled. <sighs> like, he has so many plays and they're all about Greek myth. <laughs> but I also just want to drag out this episode on forever uh, because I can't stop talking about her. So instead, this end bit will be really short and sweet because this script was so long. Unless I mentioned it, all the quotes are from the Wilson translation. It was just really the two very long bits that I recited that are from the Miller. I know sometimes people don't entirely understand why I had to switch between translations sometimes. So the quick explanation is copyright. The long recitations are from old copyright-free translations, whereas I need to be very limited in how much I quote from copyrighted translations. Does that make sense? <laughs> copyright-free translations is the old one. Did I say that? And an interesting thing to note uh, when it comes to the performance of this tragedy is how much the same as with Greek tragedies, we don't actually really know anything about how they were performed. You know, stage directions, costuming, anything like that. So everything has to be determined and like pulled out of the text itself. For that reason, the Wilson translation doesn't include any stage directions at all, just the characters and their lines. Whereas the Miller does add in these things, like determined entirely by the translator at the time. There's no right or wrong way to do this because like we just don't know, but it is interesting. And now I've got a lovely five-star review from one of you amazing listeners. This one really went for the unfair reviews that I've been given in the past. So thank you. It comes from a user called The Nick Jones in the UK. She's not a farmer, but she knows and loves this stuff. Writing this review as I have read some from men that were very negative. This struck me as very unfair. The host is a feminist, not something she tries to hide. So I hear the tales from a different angle to the one I had when I first came across these stories in an all-boys school. The problem being... The host loves the topic and that comes across on her presentation. She has great diction, so is able to clearly be... I fucked up that line. I'm going to keep it in because it's kind of funny. Normally I would cut that out, but I, my diction is only good when I catch it. Anyway, she has great diction, so is able to clearly, to be clearly heard and understood. Would that all podcasts were the same. I mean, that's ironic. It's fine. I recently found this show and listened to the 300 slash Thermopylae slash Spartan Mirage episodes, then went back to the start and I'm greatly enjoying it. If you like the stories from ancient Greece, this is a great show to subscribe to. Thank you, the Nick Jones. Um, thank you for allowing me some lighthearted irony at the end of this episode. And now I feel like I can't speak. Normally I'm better. Anyway, let's talk about Miss Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, perhaps more colloquially known as my assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I know that she's murderous as all hell, but seriously, seriously, I fucking love Medea. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. 
it's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good. And we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book Blink. Can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council.